Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Building a stronger financial foundation? Good plan. Northwestern Mutual's Guide to Good Financial Planning can help you balance spending and saving, set goals, and start creating the life you want to be living. You'll learn how the tools in your financial plan reinforce each other to help you minimize taxes and offset potential risks. Grow your confidence by strengthening your finances today at northwesternmutual.com slash goodplan. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. The Bowery Boys Episode 112. Gracie Mansion. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And we are going back to basics on mm. this show, Tom. And we have we've been spending a few months on topics that were th- uh, thematic, right. on expansive, ev- on events. Um, now we're going mini series. We were um, doing mini series. Yes, we're no longer doing a mini series. This is a self-contained episode. <laughs> Back to our discussion of a location, a slow slog through the history of that particular location, and that would be Gracie Mansion, an elegant old house that was the home of one of early New York's most prominent merchants and one of the New York's wealthiest men, and later would become, for at least nine mayors, I believe, the official mayoral residence. And what I think is kind of fun, Greg, is that we get to go back to the Dutch days. We get to pedal forward through the revolution and the Civil War. And we even get to talk about Robert Moses. It's been a while since since Bobby popped up. This may seem like a typical podcast for us because it's it's going to be going very slowly chronologically. But it actually takes some unexpected directions. And at the end, we'll even take you inside the mansion because one of us went there this week. And we'll tell you how you can visit as well. So come in for a visit as we take a stroll through Gracie Mansion. Now, as our regular listeners know, we begin every show with situating where a particular location is at in New York. And I think that's important for this one. A lot of people don't really know where Gracie Mansion is, and it's a little bit off the beaten path. It certainly was when it was built, intentionally off Mm -hmm. the beaten path. But today, you can find Gracie Mansion uh, inside Carl Schertz Park, which is on East End Avenue and 86th Street. Now, Gracie Mansion is the official residence of the mayor of New York City, and it has been the official residence since 1942. The house and the park look out over the East River toward Randall's Island and Hell's Gate, which we've discussed in previous podcasts a couple times. It's that 
that turbulent body of water that's the confluence of the East River, uh, the Long Island Sound, and the Harlem River. And it's some uh, difficult terrain to navigate, at least it used to be. Dozens of ships have met their end here at their Hell's Gate. And as a matter of fact, in the 19th century, they had to dynamite part of the land around it so that boats could better navigate the waters there. And it's important to remember that as we dial back to the time of the house's actual construction, the house was a part of the countryside. It was not at all in New York City. In fact, it was about five miles north of the city. You know, Tom, this weekend, I actually walked from the financial district. This is a very daring walk. This is crazy. My feet were killing me. (laughs) I walked from the financial district to Gracie Mansion just to figure out like how long a walk would take. Not that anyone would do that. That's absurd. But it was about two hours on foot. And you could do it. But at the time that it was built, typically people actually took boats up to that area and and then just docked there. And then they just arrived to their house from there. It was sort of considered the Hamptons of the early 18th century. So that's where we are. That's where Gracie Mansion has been plopped down. But before Gracie Mansion was built, there was actually another building on the site. Yes, and I'll get to that in a second. But I feel like I need to describe the environs here just a little bit further. It's sort of an unusual area of the island of Manhattan because, you know, the east side of Manhattan after, say, you know, Delancey or Houston Street, how it kind of goes kind of straight up in a, in a fairly even line, at least today, especially now that they've, it's been evened out, but it was it's fairly down. straightened out. But around 90th Street, it actually juts in inward and creates a little cove. And that's around, again, in the Hell's Gate area, like across the water from Randall's Island and mm-hmm. Ward's Island. Back in the day, they used to call this Horn's Hook or actually Horn, H-O-O-R-N, I believe. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. Horn's Hook. And this would be Dutch? Yes, it was, it was a city in the Netherlands. It was named that by the very first European owner of the land up in this area, and his name was Seibout Clayson. Seibout did have the land here. It was granted to him by the Dutch West India Company in 1646. Interestingly, Tom, do you know the Cape Horn at the southern tip of South America is also named after this very same uh, town in the Netherlands? It was Cape Horn. Cape Horn. Wow. (laughs) H-O-O-R-N. So he had actually a farmhouse here. People would sometimes actually even go into this cove area of Horn's Hook and uh, they would dock boats here, but sometimes they would go swimming. I wouldn't recommend uh, swimming in this area today. You might actually find actual hooks, <laughs> actual horns and hooks. Well, in also the, water. the area today doesn't seem very accessible to the water. It's important to remember that at the time, the, the, the land actually sloped down into mm-hmm. the river. So you could pull up a boat and then just kind of walk up the hill. And we'll explain in a moment why it's no longer accessible of course. Well, as we know, like in the 17th century, the British took over from the Dutch. Clayson's wife then passed the land holdings over to the village of New Harlem, which mm-hmm. is, of course, not that far away from this area. Shoot on up to 1770, so that was, this was uh, many, many years later. This area was sold for 440 pounds, or that in today's currency, that would be $558, but adjusting for inflation was about $66,000. And this was sold to a man named Jacob Walton. And this is the entire land that Gracie Mansion is on now, or this is yes, more? Yes, uh, well, it was actually a little more than that. So it was, a, it was a pretty larger land property than what we're about to discuss. Mr. Walton was a merchant over in the village of Flatbush, mm-hmm. one of the earliest settlements of King County slash 
future Brooklyn. He built a lavish country home here. It was actually the first home of merit that would be on the property. He called it the Bellevue House. Oh, I was going to ask who merit is. <laughs> a home of merit. Right. No, no, in fact, this was the home of the Waltons. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. And, uh, you know, and John Boy and Elizabeth, they were, they were British loyalists. <laughs> That was a, a 70s TV reference for the, for the younger in the audience. <laughs> of course, you know, it's easy to see why anyone would build a house here. Extraordinary views. I mean, today the view is still absolutely breathtaking. One of the most gorgeous views I think you can find in Upper Manhattan. Absolutely. And if you can just imagine that nobody else was around, that you were surrounded by gardens and trees and forests. Out looking in the water. I mean, this churning water filled with boats, of course, navigating it. I'm sure they saw a lot of... Uh, shipwrecks themselves. Now, I guess, like I inferred, these they were British. They were British loyalists, and they were very, very loyal. <laughs> so, in the 1770s, uh, things would become tricky. That yeah, exactly. Um, as a matter of fact, Walton was a um, was a VP of the Chamber of Commerce, and actually helped finance that infamous King George statue uh-huh. that stood in Bowling Green, and it was the point of much consternation to the American rebels. Because of all of this, he built a very special feature onto this farmhouse. It was a, an underground tunnel that actually linked the house to the shore so that they could actually make a quick getaway in, in case there was an attack, in case there was some kind of an invasion. They never got to use them, however, because in early 1776, with war approaching and Washington began amassing his men here in New York... Well, they didn't have to escape quickly. They just escaped very slowly. In fact, they escaped over to Queens County and basically hid there and abandoned their home, which was, of course, great distress to the family. So what became of their home? Well, Washington did, in fact, take it over. I mean, this was a very strategic site militarily, a place of great scenery and a great, of great outlook. And of course, this is also going to be helpful if you're, you know, watching for the enemy. So they actually built right next to the Walton home, they built a battery which they called the Thompson's Battery, named for um, a, a revolutionary general. And in fact, the same man that Thompson Street uh, is named after mm-hmm. in Soho, in the West, West Village. The battery was loaded with cannons. They were all set and ready to defend. And then, of course, the Continental Army was basically driven out by the right. British after the Battle of Long Island and um, forced out of Manhattan. They entirely occupied Manhattan, of course, until 1783, but by that point, in September of 1776, the Walton House had been completely destroyed, and this, and this fortress had been completely demolished by the British. However, one tiny remnant remains of this era at the Gracie Mansion. If you do a tour in one of the rooms, there is a cannonball from this period that they found during an excavation, and you can still see it, and this is from, this, uh, from the Revolutionary War era. And, and now- do we know if the cannonball belonged to the Loyalists or to the Patriots? I would Whose have- ball is it, Greg? <laughs> I'm just going to make a guess um, that it's actually from the Continental Army, mm-hmm. because it's an unused cannonball. They probably had to flee the scene, and they probably just left some of their cannonballs because you can't just throw them in a knapsack, you know. So <laughs> Make a quick getaway. So anyway, so after the war, after 1783, the, it still technically belonged to the Walton family. The Walton children surrendered this land, however. They didn't want to go back to it, and they sold it for about half the value in which they actually bought it, which was pretty cheap. And they sold it to someone who would be very important to the history of New York. 
Mr. Archibald Gracie. But before we get to that transaction, let's mm-hmm. fall back about 20 years. Archibald Gracie was a shipping merchant who was born in 1755 in Dumfries, Scotland. So about 25 years before this period. Before any of this, about. right. Right. Before the Waltons even got it at the house. When he was 21 years old in 1776, he moved to Liverpool. He started working for a firm in the Dutch West India Company. And so he he was starting to trade and that sort of thing. In 1784, at the age of 29, he moved to New York and started actually trading the goods that he brought over from Scotland on the ship with him. An interesting period because, of course, New York was finally free to pursue its own interests outside of the British. And so I'm sure it was also a very chaotic time as well. We actually have documents from the time I found an advertisement that he placed on the General Advertiser uh, newspaper (laughs) on June 9th, 1784. And the advertisement states that Archibald Grace and Company, number 224 Queen Street, opposite the fly market, have imported in the ship Genie from Liverpool a very extensive assortment of dry goods particularly adapted for the season, purchased from the very best manufacturers, which will be disposed of, on the most moderate terms, by the package or piece for cash. Wow. So this was in like like the 18th century penny power? Is that what this was, <laughs> essentially? Exactly. Okay. And he, then he listed out all of these items that he had brought over that were for sale. Lots of clothing, um, swaths of cloth, silver watches and toys, tinware, you know, mm-hmm. chinaware, etc. And at the very end, the very last little note under a line says, and a very few cases of very fine London porter and Liverpool beer. Mm. But this is how he made his name and made all of his money. And it worked quite well for him, at least at the beginning. In 1793, he moved his family to 110 Broadway, and he started becoming involved in various civic organizations and business endeavors. And times were good from 1793 all the way up to 1807, quite good for his business because there was a war going on Mm -hmm. between England and France. And Gracie sort of moved right in and was able to trade with both sides of them, selling and trading tobacco and flour and the cloth and that sort of thing. So he found a niche, which was legal up until that period, Uh to trade with both sides, with both parties in that war. And it worked out well. And because of this, he became one of the richest men in the city. In fact, Greg, he's involved in many things that we've talked about uh, Mm -hmm. in prior podcasts. Like in 1801, he was one of the founding members, along with Alexander Hamilton and Richard Varick, of the New York Evening Post. And this was basically the uh, a federalist organ uh, to get out their philosophies and ideas. So he was a very good friend of Alexander. Of Hamilton. Alexander's, yes. I mean, he is a contemporary of the founding fathers. He's of their graduating class, essentially. A little bit younger, perhaps. But a contemporary. They would sit at the same table. Mm-hmm. He also was a founding member of the Free School Society, which pushed for the education of poor children whose families couldn't afford private education, which was their only option at that point. He was a founding member of the Tontine Association, which was New York's first stock exchange. Mm -hmm. So as a member of high society in the young city of New York, it made sense that he would want to build a country estate for himself. Also, let's not forget that in 1795, there was a yellow fever epidemic Mm -hmm. in New York City. The city's residents fled above 14th Street to escape the epidemic and get into sort of fresh country breezes and things. So not only was it fashionable to get outside the city to relax and just be away from the hustle and bustle, but there was also a kind of safety seen in this sort of retreat. 
And it really, I mean, as I, I mentioned the Hamptons analogy earlier, but really they were they were joining like upper class company or, or that also had other estates around there, like the Beekmans and the Rhinelanders. The Astors mm-hmm. would actually buy property just adjacent to the property that in 1798, Mr. Gracie bought from the Walton family heirs, for which he paid $5,625 for two parcels of land or about 11 acres. Mm-hmm. And so it came to pass that Mr. (laughs) Gracie would construct his country summer house on top of Walton's foundations. But he he raised the thing first, Mm -hmm. but it was on the old foundation. The building itself is a two-story wooden structure uh, with a third-floor attic level that was built in the federal style. We'll get more into the details of what it looks like and what the interiors are like when Greg takes us on a tour Mm -hmm. a little bit later. But the the building is now painted in in yellow with green shutters, and it it features a distinct three sided porch that wraps around, and also trellises that are on the second floor exterior and also along the attic at the top. Mm-hmm. It's very pretty. It's it's federalist to the extreme. Now there is some dispute about who actually designed the building. The architect seems to be uncertain. It's either John McComb Jr. who designed New York City Hall and Hamilton Grange. But it's also been attributed to Ezra Weeks, who we know was the contractor who actually built the place. So, okay. so there is some uncertainty here. Now, Ezra Weeks—that name yes. rings a bell. And I, and from a, I think from one of our a, a podcast that we did a couple years ago um, on ghost stories. Right. He I actually think it was what, two years ago. Maybe was it spooky stories or was, was it haunted tales? Haunted tales. Haunted tales. And it was. Ezra, was it Ezra Weeks or was it like his brother? It was actually Ezra Weeks' brother, Levi, who was accused in a sultry murder trial in Soho that happened one winter night. I don't want to give it away if you haven't heard the story yet. It's great, and you can even visit a well on Spring Street, and that's all I'm going to say. But I will add that his attorney in that case was Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton. So it makes, there's the connect, you see the connection here finally. And the other interesting detail is that the two people who may have built Gracie Mansion, Weeks and McComb, were both witnesses in the trial. It's a small world, it's a small city at this time. Right. And, and speaking of, a frequent guest at the at Gracie's mansion would be a, a writer by the name of Washington Irving, oh. who would come over all the time. Apparently he was, uh, you know, one of the, he was in good with the family. And well, in the early 1800s, while times were still good for the family, they had great dinner parties. It was their country retreat, and they'd have these fancy dinners attended by New York's elites, such as Washington Irving, also Alexander Hamilton, DeWitt Clinton would come for dinner, uh, Rufus King, the ambassador to Britain, who would later play another role in Gracie Mansion. Right, and he also um, was a signer of the Constitution. Louis Philippe, future king of France, mm-hmm. dined with the Gracies, and President John Quincy Adams, among others. Ate at that table. And remember that they couldn't really just drive up Fifth Avenue because that extension from 6th Street up to 120th Street hadn't been built yet. That was constructed in the, from 1826 to 1838. So at this time, all these people coming up to their country retreat had to take a boat five miles north of the city to get there. So those are the happy times at the Gracie Mansion. But unfortunately, a dark cloud is settling all over all of New York, but specifically on the fortunes of Archibald Gracie. And that cloud would, of course, be the events behind the War of 1812. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. 
Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. This conflict between the British and the French would cause a, a dent in New York's economy eventually. The British were blocking trade with France, and what they were also doing is impressing U.S. sailors and forcing them into service, which, of course, you know, the newly formed country of the United States wasn't very thrilled about. Right. In 1807, President Thomas Jefferson, not wanting to go to war uh, with the British, endorsed the Embargo Act, which prevented trade to these foreign ports. So Gracie's little in for his business of, of trading with both of these enemies, really, was no longer... Oh, yeah. This was a very bad for Gracie's business, not only because he just couldn't transact with these with these places but his own boats kept getting captured and uh mm. sometimes destroyed so by 1809 like new yorkers were just they knew another war was going to, was right around the corner they were building fortresses throughout the water throughout new york harbor by this time in 1810 the gracies moved down to one pearl street and they actually built another mansion so they actually have two mansions the summer mansion and the winter mansion mm -hmm. uh, the one at one pearl street was in the heart of the city as a matter of fact it sat one pearl street was is technically sitting right next to fort amsterdam which of course would be fort william but this had been ripped down and had been turned into parade ground but then of course when they got up every morning, they could look out and they, they would look out over the battery and they would see their own boats. One day they woke up and they saw that they were building a fortress out in the middle of the water, which a fortress that we would today call Castle Clinton. So the city was gearing up for war. Even his own summer house would soon be caught up in this fervor. In May of 1812, his land would be commandeered and cannons would actually be moved into his front yard. That would look over Hell's Gate, of course. I mean, this was a still a very ideal place militarily just because he has a nice house there. It doesn't change right. that fact. There would even be ships that were preparing for war that would be docked down on that cove right in front of his house within sight of his own bedroom win windows during the summer when they would still summer up there even though with this threat of war. I mean, where else could they go? During these summer periods, these tense wartime periods, they still had all of these guests over that you had mentioned. Luckily, of course, as we know, the real main battles of the War of 1812 never really even saw New York Harbor. Enemy ships never really entered the East River. And, of course, the whole confrontation ended in 1815. But probably had done some pretty serious damage financially. Absolutely. He had so many mounting debts by this time. The British and French owed him lots and lots of money. They owed him ships and they, they weren't paying him back. 
he would end up crossing to, over to Europe repeatedly in entreaties to try to get some of this back from them. During one of his trips in 1817, he left his business back home in the hands of his sons, who almost comically got into a bit of speculation and then lost a lot more money. So mm. they actually ended up borrowing all this money that they couldn't return. They eventually had to relinquish Gracie Mansion and the acreage, acreages. They actually had to sign over some of this property over to his friend Rufus King, believe it or not. Who, who, who used to dine with him, yes. In 1820, Gracie Mansion was put up for sale. They even had to move out of their homes downtown, and they had to, like, shack up with friends. Like, oh. things got really, really bad for the Gracies. The British eventually paid him back, of course, but by this time, there was a terrible string of tragedies that happened in the Gracie family. Archibald's wife died in Cuba. She, he had sent her down there for her health, and she ended up dying there. The friend that he was staying with, who was giving him a place to sleep, well, then he was murdered in a gang riot, then he had to leave the house. In um, a gang riot? Yes, in an, early, in an early instance of gang violence in New York City. And then, of course, on April 11th of 1829, Archibald himself died of a skin disease, oh. um, a very a grisly disease called St. Anthony's Fire. That was the old name for it. That's what they called it back then. It's a rather tragic and dismal end to the it, to the whole family. But I will. But before we before we sort of leave the Gracies forever, I, I need to like as two footnotes talk about two of his descendants. His grandson Archibald Gracie the third. He ended up being in the Civil War as a, a brigadier general for the Confederacy. Uh huh. His son and Archibald Gracie's great grandson, called Archibald Gracie the fourth. They really liked that name. He actually survived the sinking of the Titanic. Not only did he survive it, he wrote the book, literally, on his exploits in the Titanic. And as, as a matter of fact, he's depicted in both film versions of the Titanic. Like, there's a Archibald Gracie, the, the fourth, fourth character, in, all, in both of them. Back to the house. By 1823, it had been sold. Right, as you said, to Rufus King, who then sold the mansion to a family called the Fulks family. F-O-U-L-K-E-S. Now, Joseph Folks was a shipbuilder, and he lived in that house for 34 years, and really hardly changed a thing, other than the only reference I could see to a change that Joseph Folks made to the mansion was that he added a marble mantle in the parlor <laughs> in 34 years. Well, I mean, he must, he must have appreciated that Federalist style. Didn't go out of style. So then in 1857, jumping ahead about 34 years... The Folks family sold Gracie Mansion to a man named Noah Wheaton. Now, Wheaton lived in the mansion until he died in 1896. Um, I have almost no information on Noah Wheaton. I have a fascinating piece of information about the please, Wheaton family. Please, Did you know, which you obviously did not know, <laughs> that his son-in-law and eventually the trustee of the property was a man named Lambert S. Quackenbush? Really? And so, and Lambert had actually married Wheaton's daughter, Hermione, meaning that her name was Hermione Quackenbush. And I just wanted to say that <laughs> aloud. So we do know something about the Wheaton family. Thank you. Lambert Thank you. and Hermione Quackenbush, yes. <laughs> right. We'll do a podcast on them later. Well, so Noah lived there, though, until 1896. Now, during this period, I think what's more interesting, even than the Quackenbush lineage, yes. is the fact that the city really changed dramatically. Mm -hmm. And obviously throughout the 1800s, the 1820s, 30s, 40s, there was a population boom. 
If we actually look at the population of New York in 1820, it's 125,000. 1840, just 20 years later, there are 300,000 people living in the city. And 20 years later in 1860, there are 800,000 people. So the city is just booming. During that time, uh, Fifth Avenue would be expanded from 6th Street up to 120th Street. In 1827, the city would get its first omnibus, Greg. (laughs) I believe we know a little bit about those. Which would seat 12 people and... And 25 years later, there would be 683 omnibuses that would serve 100,000 passengers a day. So the city really transformed in a way that I don't really feel like we can grasp. Well, but essentially, all these people had to go somewhere. And so they just spread northward up, well, uh, on top of the other boroughs, of course, but they spread northward up through Manhattan and, of course, settled around this area. Uh, The farmland around Gracie Mansion was sold off and developed into residential properties. And furthermore, from the 1870s onward, the city had started actually buying up property around Mm -hmm. Gracie Mansion. They were cooking up the idea of building a park up there as well. But however, they couldn't buy, right in the middle of it, they couldn't buy that Gracie Mansion property because Noah Wheaton was living inside with this Quackenbushes. Yes, with the Quackenbushes. And he died in 1896, and the city actually then condemned the land and the mansion and took control of the property. Now, I mean, this area is still as beautiful as ever. Granted, it's built up around the East River now, and things are looking a little bit different. They want to turn this area into a city park, naturally. So they ended up remapping the area a little bit, carving up blocks. They actually left this 11 acres pretty much as it was, with leaving the mansion intact, but of course it's falling apart, and the blocks to its south were free. Something very curious was happening, though, right to the west. This was being built up with tenements and brand new places to live. The neighborhood soon took the name of Yorkville. It was interesting because a lot of various ethnicities soon moved into the neighborhood, But around the streets of the 80s and the 90s, it actually developed a very strong German presence. In fact, 86th Street was known informally as German Boulevard. And there would be a lot of cafes, salons, uh, taverns, even movie theaters. But you can still get some good verst up there. Yes, you can. It it still has an echo of of its glory days. So when they opened this park, they decided that they would pick a name of somebody who was very, very important to the community. So in 1910, they named it Carl Schurz Park. Now, Mr. Schurz, I believe that's how you pronounce his last name, Carl Schur, we'll call him Carl, was, believe it or not, the very first German-born member of the U.S. Congress. Um, Uh And he was, in 1869, he was a senator from Missouri. A senator from Missouri. Named, yes, a senator from Missouri who was German oh, Missouri. 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 Okay, yeah. sorry. I, th- I heard he was a senator from Missouri. Missouri. <laughs> the German. It's Where, a- where's Missouri? <laughs> Missouri well, Missouri has a lot of German people in it, so that makes sense Absolutely. to me. Um, he was also a, U- a Union Army war veteran. Believe it or not, in his later years, he was an editor at the New York Evening Post, just to sort of like tie oh. it back to the beginnings of history. He was a big hero among the ranks of the German-born, the first generation of Germans here in New York. In his older days, he actually lived in Yorkville. He died in 1906, so in his honor, they did name this park after him. Uh And it still holds his name today. Of course, this brand new spanking park with his name on it had this house that was 
falling apart and was really in great state of disrepair. Which at this point is 100 years old. Yeah, so they didn't know what to do with it. So they, they just it's they just at first treat it like an oversized shed mm-hmm. where they just stored a lot of like park supplies. You right. know, like They weren't looking at it thinking, what an exquisite example of Federalist <laughs> architecture. No, they were like, where can I put the lawnmower? In 1915, they would use this, uh, the main entrance room there for like sewing classes for girls, like carpentry classes for boys. They even, for a very short time, which I just, I don't know why I find this so amusing, they used it as a refreshment stand. And you could get, like, it was a soda fountain in the basement. And wow. you could they have like, a counter? I can't imagine it was that sort of fancy, but you could get ices and you could get snacks there, you know, if you were sitting out there enjoying the view. Wow. But as the, with vast changes to the city, you know, a lot of the old families, old money New Yorkers were sort of feeling this sort of pinch that their old world was like leaking away from them. The old Knickerbocker New York was sort of drifting out of their sights. So this house soon took on a value to some of these old families. A lot of these old houses were completely gone, had been washed away. This house managed to still be around because it stood on this very lovely vista. And not only here, I mean, the mansions of the other rich families were disappearing around Gracie Mansion, but also all of the, the mansions along Fifth Avenue at this point were being ripped down and replaced by apartment buildings. I mean, you can count on like one hand the number of old summer houses that still exist, like the um, the Morse Jamel Mansion is one, for instance. So there's this was a, a dying breed. So some of these old money families decided that they wanted to do something about it. One old feisty dame that tried to stick her head in here. Um, her name was May Van Rensselaer. Mm, Van Rensselaer, yes. Uh, one of the oldest families, of course. They called her, quote, the Duchess of the Victorian period. Is one quotation of how they described her. She wrote society gossip. She wrote she would write articles on euchre and croquet lace. <laughs> what a card. <laughs> she was involved with the New York Historical Society. But she was angered. She didn't like them. She thought she, the authoress of someone who would write something on croquet lace, thought that the New York Historical Society was stodgy. They thought it was a boys club. She actually once called them a deformed monstrosity. She thought that they weren't doing enough for New York, for New York's heritage. So she had a series of tea parties to rally for like a new organization, a new museum, she called her organization the Society for Patriotic New Yorkers. And to be a member, all you needed to do was prove that you had blood back to a patriot who had fought or was involved in the War of 1776. So she was holding tea parties for self-proclaimed patriots? <laughs> yes. May Van Rensselaer was having tea parties. No parallels at all. She saw Gracie Mansion as an opportunity to promote the old style, to promote the old families of New York City. Um, it would be run by society ladies. She, her idea was to, quote, to install figures of men and women, call them wax figure, if you like, dressed in costumes of their time and surrounded by furniture that they knew. So but, imagine we, could, we could have had a wax museum of like people in an old colonial, colonial wear. Colonial wear. Yeah. Did she do it? Did she succeed? She did not succeed, actually, but someone else took out this, took up this mantle and a little bit more of a, a doable, more workable idea. His name was Henry Collins Brown. 
He was a writer and historian. 1924, he would end up publishing a book that was very popular called Fifth Avenue, Old and New, that did look back at the older days of New York City, kept sort of an early, sort of what we're doing, except uh, 100 years ago. Mm. And without the Walton jokes. Without, without the Walton jokes and the Tea Party references, yes. <laughs> he also thought the Historical Society was a, st- a tad stuffy, so he decided he started his own group. So in November of 1924, here at Gracie Mansion, he opened a museum devoted just to city history called the Museum of the City of New York. Uh-huh. In honor of May, although she didn't wasn't connected to this, they dedicated the entire second floor of artifacts and exhibits to May Van Rensselaer. This is where it started. The Museum of City New York had its start here at Gracie Mansion. Not a real success at first. He wasn't like a great promoter. He liked history, but he wasn't a good marketer. As I read, as one journalist asked, who even knows that New York has this museum? So it wasn't a big threat to the stuffier New York Historical Society? No, not not at all. They stayed here for a while, though. The house, though, it was a wreck. It's not really, it was not really ideal for what their purposes were. Eventually, they moved out, and in 1932, they moved to their current home over on Fifth Avenue, um, mm-hmm. across from Central Park, and Gracie Mansion became empty once again. Now, at this time, however, the city had a new parks commissioner by the name of Robert Moses, and he was busy fixing up all kinds of things all over the city. Remember these initiatives that he had to go into the parks, fix them up, fix up the the park benches, paint things down. It was also during the Depression. So Mm -hmm. he had access to a lot of federal dollars and to WPA artists. So he was fixing up his parks all over the city. And one of his parks was, of course, also Carl Schurz Mm -hmm. Park. Moses was also looking around for a site where he could build a grand mayoral residence. This was just a project of his. He wanted something that could rival even the New York State Governor's Mansion mm-hmm. and maybe even rival the White House. Oh, that's ambitious, but that is Moses for that you. That is Moses. One of the places he came across was actually the Schwab Mansion, which was built in 1906 in the French Chateau style with <laughs> 75 rooms. The mayor, Fiorella LaGuardia at the time, scoffed at the idea, saying it was entirely too pompous for him to move into a 75-room French chateau. (laughs) Really? Long story short, Moses fixed up Gracie Mansion, putting his artists at work, restoring the details, and LaGuardia and his wife, Marie, moved in in 1942 as the first mayor and first first lady to live in Gracie Mansion. What's interesting is that as the parks commissioner, Moses actually became LaGuardia's landlord, which just adds another sort of like interesting dimension to, like the, to like, Moses's like, right, power. The, like their relationship wasn't complex enough. Right. Now, since then, nine mayors have lived in Gracie Mansion up through Rudy Giuliani. After LaGuardia, William O'Dwyer lived there. Impelitary. Correct. Uh, Robert Wagner. Good. John Lindsay. And then... A Beam. And then? Ed Koch, David Dinkins, Rudy Giuliani. And Rudy Giuliani. Well done, Greg. I must note that Greg was not even looking at her list. (laughs) But I did break a sweat there. (laughs) Now, during the Wagner years, uh, the wife of Robert Wagner, Susan, initiated a project to fix the place up. She was a little bit concerned because, remember that they were living in the space as well and hosting all manner of public receptions and dignitaries and dinners and such in the structure. 
and it's surprising. I'm not saying it's a small house by any means, but for all in this activity, it must they must have been stepping all over each other. I mean, think about it. At the White House, they they have their private residence upstairs, and then downstairs you have the public functions. Well, Susan Wagner initiated this project to build what is the Susan Wagner West Wing of Gracie Mansion, which would add a couple of new reception rooms and a ballroom that would be ideal for these public events. It was also designed in a way to fit in harmoniously with the Federalist style, which was not at all popular with the architecture critics at the time, who said that it was, you know, just like bowing to traditional architecture, and she could have done something far more modern. Of course, today it looks great. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, why didn't she go for Brutalist style? There's (laughs) entirely too little concrete. It was 1966 when it opened, um, and unfortunately she had passed away by that time. But they named it after her. They named the wing after Susan Wagner. And I think that every mayor since is, in, is incredibly thankful to her for taking on this project. Interestingly, in the 70s, in 1978, the mayor-elect Ed Koch was really hesitant to move into the mayor's mansion. He didn't want to leave his apartment. But he had to bow to public pressure. The New York Times wrote an editorial that he'd better move in there because it was, <laughs> you know, the people's house and... And he ended up loving that building, and even so much, in the 80s, in 1981, he helped found the Gracie Mansion Conservancy, Mm -hmm. which was established to preserve and maintain the building. During the renovation period, he refused to move out to go back to his old apartment because he loved it. He, He said to the press, it's a nice place and I'm not leaving. Well, that, I mean, so he grew to love it. Tom, I had the opportunity to take a tour of Gracie Mansion, not not even 24 hours ago. Wow. And I wanted to let's walk us through it just a little bit. And now, these tours are open to the public on Wednesdays. On Wednesdays, they, you have to go to, you can call 311 or go to the website for Gracie Mansion to get more information on that. Before we go in, I should add that this beautiful park um, has a very curious feature about it underneath it. Because the FDR Drive is hidden underneath it and, dri- and goes underneath Carl Schur's Park. And it was built as a land extension. Mm-hmm. So the park itself is a little bit longer than the original land property used to be. Mm-hmm. But the Gracie Mansion area itself is, a, is fenced in, in in a black wrought iron fence. And you can only go in through security. It, the way they have it now, it's. I hope that they fix it soon. It's very sort of pinched when you go in you and you there's like a metal detector and airport know. style screening yes there is it's you know there's a lot of security you can't really waver from the path here you actually go into that big beautiful beautiful porch in front yard is not how you actually enter the house you enter it from a side portico on either side there's staircases down to the kitchen and sort of like lesser rooms but there's a grand staircase that you you walk up and you bam you enter the ballroom they call it the ballroom, though there's never been any dancing there, but it's a ballroom. I mean, it's a, it's a huge room with a wooden floor and a chandelier and mirrors and looking glasses and everything. And so, this is in the new wing, Susan? This, this is in the new wing of the new, new part of the house. They, right. call the, they call the other part the old house. They still have big events here all the time. And the thing is, is like during my tour, there was literally another event happening somewhere else in the house. It's a very colorful house. This room itself was in Venetian blue. They were still, there was actually like in the corner, someone was painting. Like they're always keeping it fresh and beautiful. 
And interestingly, it's all paid with private funds and with donations. Mm -hmm. In a way, it has this um, vintage garage sale quality to it because all the furniture is donated by old wealthy families or from old estates that have... uh, Maybe we should say estate sale. An estate sale. There we go. That's what I was looking for. Everything in the house is either made in New York or it depicts New Yorkers. So everything has that um, Mm -hmm. local quality to it. For instance, over on your left, there's a big honking Steinway piano Mm. that was made right over the water. Now, there are two reception rooms. One of them is this gorgeous room that is the centerpiece is a gigantic painting of Susan Wagner. There's a smaller dining room that they it's called like a breakfast nook. They often have breakfast meetings here. Tom, there is a bookshelf in this room to die for. It was donated by Hamilton Fish, an old another old family of New York. If we had the books in this bookshelf, we wouldn't have to go anywhere else for research for this podcast. It was it's an extraordinary bookshelf. This room would be used for a lot of political functions as well. As a, as a matter of fact, I believe just last month, Bloomberg had breakfast here with one Joe Biden. Oh. We talked about economic issues here in the nook. Now, this is the new house. It's all separated by these big, thick wooden doors. And though it looks exactly like the old house in terms of style, this is how you know it's a different house. So you go into these big, thick wooden doors and you head through to the main front door. Facing the river? Facing the river. If you were to go up the porch, open the front door, you stand in this main entryway. There's a large staircase upstairs. Right next to it are two drawings, one of LaGuardia and one of Robert Moses. So I looked him right in the eye while I was standing in this room. I like this idea. It has like a like a bunch of faux work done, so the floors look like they're marble. Right. It's like a gigantic compass is painted on the floor, and I believe that that is a key part of Federalist design and decor as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the brightly painted walls and also sort of the faux finishes, so the faux marble on the floor. It's a house of illusions. Now, to your right, you'll go into a beautiful, bright sitting room with another Steinway piano. They're filled with Steinway pianos here. The feature that I like the most about this room is it has these windows that don't have sills. Like, they literally, they go all the way down to the bottom. So, essentially, in summer months, like, because of this beautiful porch, you could just pull up the window and use it as a door. Wow. It's these gigantic, I know, aren't those wonderful? Almost push the tour guide out of the way and unfurl the picnic basket. Now, upstairs, there's various different bedrooms. Do you have access to those as well? You get to go into some of the bedrooms. This is this was actually the including the master bedroom where the mayors themselves would sleep. But I found more interesting they have guest bedrooms that are done up in various different styles as well. And up in, these were used up until just a few years ago. As a matter of fact, one of them, according to my tour guide, the last guest who had slept in it was Desmond Tutu. So the mansion continued to play host to dignitaries. Yes. And we should just point out also that you're able to go into these bedrooms and to go upstairs because the current mayor does not live there. I'm sure that if the mayor lived there, you probably wouldn't be snooping around the bedrooms. No, that's true. Now, Giuliani moved out uh, when his term was over in 2002. As New Yorkers, you'd always see posts, articles about how drama at Gracie Mansion, like he'd be there with his girlfriend while his ex-wife was there. And, you know. Right. And and I believe that the city ordinances are written as such that only the mayor and his wife can live Mm -hmm. in Gracie Mansion. So if you're going through a divorce, that can become kind of difficult. Well, Bloomberg is divorced. Um, He, of course, has as an opulent home already on the Upper East Side and 79th Street, not that far away. 
So he preferred to live in his old home. And unlike the battle that Koch had with the press, Bloomberg sort of won that battle. But he framed it by saying that he would prefer to open up Gracie Mansion for people to enjoy. And he called it the people's home Mm -hmm. so that we could go on tours and that we could, you know, they can have these public functions um, like and private functions. there. And it's undeniable that it is a it is a very public place. Like I said, uh, you can find out more about the tours on their website. I'll have a link to that and some more information regarding Gracie Mansion and a few pictures, including a couple from my tour. You can't take pictures of the inside. There's a lot of security, but I took some of the outside. You can find that on our blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com. A note on our schedule for the next month and a half, because Tom and I both have trips Um, The next show will be a solo show, but it won't be until three weeks. We usually do two weeks between, but this will be for three weeks. So it'll be, I believe, the first week in October. And then two weeks after that, Tom and I will be doing another duo show, and it will be our annual Halloween episode. So to get in the mood, and if you just need a fix, you can go back, revisit the archives and episodes past... For spooky stories, haunted tales. And ghost stories. And ghost stories. So thanks for joining us on our trip back through Gracie Mansion's history. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Building a stronger financial foundation? Good plan. Northwestern Mutual's Guide to Good Financial Planning can help you balance spending and saving, set goals, and start creating the life you want to be living. You'll learn how the tools in your financial plan reinforce each other to help you minimize taxes and offset potential risks. Grow your confidence by strengthening your finances today at northwesternmutual.com slash good plan. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin.